that I ask our men to come up as we prepare for communion tonight. We'll clear our front row for uh, receiving communion. Carol played the song, Jesus Loves Me. Another song that goes along with that. Oh, how he loves you and me. I think about the love of God as shown in this morning's passage. A love that we don't deserve. We're here to celebrate what Christ has done uh, for us. Communion is a time we're remembering his sacrifice for us. So let's worship together, rejoice together. And let's honor Christ together as we take communion. But let's prepare our hearts for this. Um, I'm going to ask Brian if he'd lead us in prayer. And uh, also pause to allow us to uh, quiet our hearts and to um, prepare our hearts to pray and, um, and to uh, make our hearts right so that we can receive communion tonight. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for bringing us into this house, Lord, to be your people, Lord. We pray, Lord, that if there's any sins in our hearts, Lord, if there's any sins that we have not confessed, that you would have us not take communion today, Lord. If there's any sins that we know we ought to have brought before the church, whether they be ours or some sins that we know about, Lord, and we have not acted on as you called us to as believers, we pray, Lord, that we would not take communion. Lord, we pray, Lord, that there's, we know that we have something against a brother or sister, or a brother and si or sister has something against us, that we would resolve that issue and then come and take that communion. Lord, we pray, Lord, if we know in our heart, Lord, that there are some obvious things that you've told us to do that we haven't done, that we will resolve to do that, Lord, and take communion today. I pray that you would just help us, Lord, to value this time of communion and to value the purity of our hearts, that we would have a right intention, that we can live before you in innocence, Lord. We don't want to have a fear of your, um, your judgment or your discipline coming down on us because of something that we're doing, Lord. We want to have full faith that we're doing work that is approved by you. So help us, Lord, to do a work that is approved by you. Help us to see where we need to improve, Lord. As we know, Lord, you're not a God who will just accept anything from our hands. You want the best. And so I pray, Lord, that we would give the best. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's pray for these elements that we receive and ask uh, Deacon Matt if you would pray for the wafer that represents Jesus' body, and Andy, if he would pray for the juice that represents his blood. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the table tonight, Lord, for the cracker that we're taking tonight that represents your broken body, Lord. And so we just pray that you would uh, it would be blessed and that they would do it in the right frame of mind, Lord, and in their hearts, Lord. And so we just pray and thank you for... Lord, we just lift up the drink as it is a symbol of the blood that you shed, um, of the, the two items that you set apart, that specific ingredients in the Last Supper to show 
the sacrifice that you would pay for your people and the blood that you shed for us, that you may uh, be the sacrifice for us, that you may wash us white as snow and um, atone us of our sins. Um, we ask that you just bless it to our bodies. In your name we pray. You would come in the front row on both sides to receive communion tonight. It's a reminder of our Savior's body that was prepared for the sacrifice that he would make that was necessary for our sins. Remember Christ then as we eat together. blood of Jesus was the only the only thing that God would receive as a payment for our sin but it was offered by the Lord Jesus Christ who submitted himself to the will of the Father on our behalf we could not pay for our own sin no one else qualified Jesus qualified he went to the cross and suffered a cruel death on the cross to pay for our sin. The picture in Revelation is that all of heaven rejoicing because the Lamb was worthy to pay for our sin. Our sin is paid for. It is finished. Our salvation has been secured. It's not yet completed because we are waiting for Christ to come and to take us so we can return and live eternally with him. Let's think on those things, the Lord Jesus Christ, what he has done, what he has yet to do as we look forward to him coming again. We drink together. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for another time to remember what Christ has done as we go from our seats here to continue in service now. We pray that during uh, this week that we would uh, seek your will that we would want to do walk in obedience to you and that the gospel living in our lives would be a big part of that in Jesus name we pray amen we have a few moments to work on the question um, do babies go to heaven tonight and we're going to do that tonight now has anyone had a chance to get this book anybody Okay, all right, let's see a couple hands. I invite you to do that. Um, God has gifted men like John MacArthur to uh, instruct us in the scriptures so that we can deal with some of the things that um, um, may be difficult to, to see. I found it a good resource and very helpful, so um, I encourage you to get that. It, it's, it didn't cost much. Um, less than lunch at McDonald's and worth it all right um, tonight I want to to look at just a few things I won't have time to to share everything um, that I prepared uh, for this question but let's take take a look at a few things um, let's turn to Job 3 
verse 1, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. That's an interesting comment because in chapter 1, verse 22, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So Job was very careful in what he said. And he was careful not to say anything that would um, be an offense to God or, or inappropriate. But then it says in chapter 3, verse 1, He opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. He goes on deeper in that. Verse 11, why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb, and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest. Job expresses the idea that if he had died at, at birth or as an infant, he'd be better off than a lot of the suffering that he was going through. How is that true? It is true only if after death as an infant, he will be received in the glory with God. Job knew and believed in the resurrection. He expresses that later on in the book. And so he understood what he was saying there. He was not misspeaking. This is part of the support. It goes into what God has in plan for infants, for babies, for children, before they're able to make a choice and receive him. And so it, 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 is, it is an interesting expression He's saying the baby who suffers and ends his suffering and dies and goes to heaven is better off than the man who lives a life of misery as Job was going through, the suffering, the intense suffering. Now, how do we take that? We take it for just that thing. Job didn't say because of that he was going to end his own life. The Bible never uh, supports suicide in any way, even for believers who, who have this security, um, their, their uh, future and their eternal state secure, the Bible never tells that. In fact, uh, one of the things we were looking at this morning in Hebrews chapter 12, we have to endure um, um, the hardships. We need to endure the trials of life, and God gives us the grace and the power to do that. But the point here is that because of God's reception of little babies when they die, Job could say that and that'd be a true statement. Get what I'm saying? Because Job knew that they are in the arms of God, he says, it'd been better if I'd have been in the arms of God early than to experience all the extremes of life that I'm gone through and then be in the arms of God. That's what he was saying. There is... Um, let me see, I have this written down. I have to look at it. Job, 9, Job 19, verse 26, yes, and 27. 
Job 19, 26, and 27. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Here we see Job expressing the understanding, the clear biblical understanding that he would experience resurrection and see God again. So he's saying he'd be better off not having to suffer what he suffered and if he had died way earlier in his life. That's an expression of his misery, yes, but it's also an expression of the hope that infants have who die. Because it's true. His statement is true. His statement is is, is biblical. All right, let's take a look at uh, something else. Ecclesi any questions on that so far? Yes. Yes. All. Yes. And I'm going to answer that later on, but maybe you might want to say what's behind that question? What, 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 what else might need to be explored in that? Do you, do you have anything? Okay, let's explore it a little bit. What about babies of unbelievers, okay? Ask this question, why would babies of believers have a benefit that babies of unbelievers would not have? What is, what is our salvation based on? It is based, we are saved by grace. Not deserved, not merited, and so, the baby is saved on the same basis that I'm saved. I haven't merited anything before God, neither have they. It is by God's grace that he secures us. We'll talk a little bit more about that because there's more that needs to be said about that, but I just wanted to point that out. So it's not just saying Christian parents who have infants because a child's safety or security is never based on the parent. Never, never. And as we think through this, this is not changing the basis of anything for salvation at all. We'll talk more about that. Uh, but, but, but while we're on there, let me just give you a quote from the book that I think is very interesting. Um, you had the book, it's on page 72, but he says this. We cannot say that babies who die go to heaven because they are sinless. Rather, babies who die go to heaven because God is gracious. Babies, another quote on the next page 73, babies who die are saved and they are saved by the only means that anyone is saved, God's grace. That's a powerful statement. Read you another quote. Fallen, sinful, guilty and depraved children who die with no spiritual merit, no personal, moral or religious merit are welcomed by God in the glory. On what basis? Solely by God's grace. We'll talk about a little bit more about what the basis for that is, but um, I just wanted to kind of to um, speak on that and answer that question. Um, let's look at another passage, Ecclesiastes six thirty-three. Excuse me, Ecclesiastes six verse three. Um, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Follow the argument here. Ecclesiastes 6, verse 3. I'm going to read through 6. Ecclesiastes 6, verse 3 through 6. 
Ecclesiastes 6, you there with me? Verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and live many, lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. Um, what he's saying here is the same thing that's expressed in Job, is that there is hope for a child, a baby, an infant that dies, um, that makes him better off than an old man who lives a miserable life. <laughs> Even though he doesn't live a full life, there is hope and a future for him. And that is because, only because, then they would be entered, God would receive them in heaven. Um, take a look at, at another uh, thought that's, that's spoken of in Scripture. Um, in Jonah chapter 4, verse 11. Jonah 4, verse 11. God is having a conversation with Jonah. And he ends that conversation this way. Should I, should, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? God's argument to Jonah is you had pity on a little shrub because it was giving you shade. You got mad because I took that shade away. You get angry over that. Shouldn't I have compassion and pity? He says, should, I, should not I pity Nineveh? So God has compassion and pity. And, and, and what's the sort, what is the uh, object of that pity? There are more than 120 persons. The word persons is, is support that uh, infants, babies, children, even unborn children are not things. They are persons, persons, he said 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. That expression, right hand from the left, is in the unique expression talking about children who do not have discernment of wrong and right yet. Okay, don't know their right hand from their left. God says these ones are innocent. They are innocent. And he reserves his judgment over them. Should I not have pity on those? Because if he was to destroy Nineveh, they would be destroyed as well. Not talking about their eternal state there, but he's talking about the fact that uh, uh, um, they, they would suffer in that. And so um, God has pity. God has compassion on those, and in, in, in this case, the way that they are expressed, not knowing the left from the right, these are ones who are not capable of making moral decisions. 
and they are innocent in God's hands. He uses other phrases to express that. I want to look at another one in Jeremiah um, chapter 19, verse 4 and 5. Jeremiah 19, verse 4 and 5. <clears throat> term innocent comes up here. Jeremiah 19, 4 says this, because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom, ne whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known, because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence. That's the key phrase. Filled this place with the blood of innocence. Um, he explains what that means in verse 5. And have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Innocents then were the children who were offered as a sacrifice in this pagan worship. God says these pagan individuals are wicked, and he talks about his judgment against them. But he says their own children that came from these same people are innocent in God's eyes. They're innocent. And that's why God has contention with those who are killing innocent children, infants, the ones that can make no decision for right or wrong yet. He does not hold them to blame. Um, um, and so... That's an important passage. That, that really helps free me in, in thinking of how God views um, those. Um, all right. Um, any, any questions so far? I want to go to, to one more thing. Uh-huh. I think there's two misconceptions there. One is that we need to understand in that verse he's talking about election and when he talks about election it's on the basis he makes it clear they're not on merit. So it's not on anything that they had done um, or would do. Okay? So the first thing is understanding e election. It's, it's, it's the mind of God that elects. It's the prerogative of God that decides election. Nothing else. Um, so the election was secured before birth. It has nothing to do whether they were a child or not, or how young they were. No, it's, it's before birth. It's before any, any of that. The second thing I think is, is a misconception often is that God looks into the future and sees whether that child would be good or bad and makes a choice based on that. Um, no. Um, <laughs> because all of us would be bad apart from God stepping in and saving us. So, no, that, that, that's, that, that's, a, that's a, a misconception as well. So, yeah, election is, is, is the mind of God, the prerogative of God as he chooses. So um, I know some people want to say, well, um, the, the children, the infants of heathen, God knew that they would or would not believe if they had reached this age, and he made a decision based on that. That I see nothing in Scripture at all uh, to base that. But what I do see here is this overall statement that God in his graciousness protects the innocent. 
and um, he has provided salvation for them. And so they are uh, a part of his, his grace um, in, in what he does. Um, let's take a look at, let's see, I was going to say something else there, but let's take a look at um, Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. This, this kind of clarifies something that um, never sat right, right with me, Exodus 20, verse 5. If you know Exodus 20, we talk about the Ten Commandments there. It says this, you should not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That's an interesting question. What, what, what is he saying there? Um, let me say this. God makes it clear in Scripture that he does not hold children responsible for the sins of their parents. He makes it clear he does not hold children responsible for the sins of their parents. Let's take a look at, at where that is stated so that we can be clear. Um, Deuteronomy, excuse me, um, Ezekiel 18.20. Ezekiel 18.20. heard this before. This is nothing new, but as we put these together and understand the mind of God, it, it, I think it clarifies for us, clarifies for me. Ezekiel 18.20, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Very clear, but it's a very important statement. God holds a person responsible for their own action. He does not hold them accountable or responsible for someone else's action. So the, the children, the infants, are never um, held responsible for the deeds of the parent. Um, so then back in Exodus, what does it mean in Exodus 20 verse 5 when he says, I should have put my marker in there. The Lord your God, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. What, what, what does that mean? I needed some clarity in that. He's saying he does not hold the children responsible for the guilt or sin of the parents. But children do suffer as a consequence of the sin of their parents. Now we can see that. That if a parent is foolish in finances, children suffer from that. It's not their fault, but they, they suffer from the consequences of the wrong or sin or doings of the parents. That's a natural consequence. That's what he's saying. When you go against my law, your wrong is going to affect generations to come. And that's true. Okay? 
Um, that's true in so many areas that, that I don't think I need to elaborate that. That, that. that makes perfect sense. We all suffer from the consequences of other people's sin, and children particularly are tied to that because they, 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 they can't do anything to impact that, but they are affected by it. They are not responsible for, before God, for their parents' sin. That's what, that's what, that clarity came to me as I looked at, you know, Ezekiel 18, 20, and then this passage. It helped me understand that a whole lot better. Does that make sense? Okay. So children are, in fact, they are not, infants are not sinless, but they are innocent before God. And there's a difference. Okay. So um, the book goes, goes through a, a good explanation of understanding um, the, the, uh, the sinfulness of man and, and how um, we inherited sinfulness. We are sin. We are sinful. We have a sin nature from the day that we are conceived. We have that sin nature, and that doesn't change. So God does not change any of that. Um, and, and so he's not saving any of us on the basis of we are sinless or perfect or merit that in the same for, for infants. But he saves them purely um, by the same thing that we are saved uh, from by grace. I'm going to pause there because I have other things that um, I won't have time to get into today. I'd rather just um, explore what we've already talked about and, and deal with any questions from that point and then. Um, next week and the following weeks to we have time to, to go into some more support. But I do urge you, um, it's worth your five bucks <laughs> to, to get a book and to, to, to look at that, that coming from an author that, that is a godly respected person. Okay, um, so today we, we established God cares about innocence. We established that According to his word, they are secure. They are better off. Um, a man is better off um, if had he died at death, uh, I mean died at, at birth, than to go through an extremely excruciating and painful and suffering life. And yet, God does not expect him to, you know, to take his own life uh, in regard to that. But it does help us understand the state of infants and children when they die. As I went through this, this was very helpful. Um, the one question it did not answer, I did not think would be answered, is what is the age of accountability? We don't know that. Uh, I think he does a good explanation of that, is that God only knows that. Only God knows that. Only God knows at what point, and, and it's going to be different for different individuals, at uh, what point, or if ever, a person reaches a point where God holds them um, at that age, responsible for their action and, and uh, their wrongdoing. I say if ever because I believe there are some people who never get to that point. And infants are one of them. They die before that point. Um, those who are, are mentally disabled in some cases can grow to be adults and live a long life but never reach maturity of, of where they are, are uh, mature enough and accountable enough for their own actions. So. The, these are extreme cases, but we do need to talk about them. Any questions on, on what we talked about so far, Don? To be fair, I made a point about that, that 
he's not specifically talking about children. That's true. He's saying that believers are like children in their faith. But the point that he's making is he does take a child and he does see them and, 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 and uh, um, count them as innocent and count them as a model of faith for us, that we should have faith like a child, that we should uh, trust in our Heavenly Father without doubting, uh, without wavering and so forth. And they are precious to him and protected by him and, and worthy of his protection. So uh, worthy is probably a poor choice of words, but he protects them because uh, he created and made them and has a protection from them. So that's displayed in that verse, and, and uh, we should not ignore that. Any other questions, comments? Don't be afraid to ask a question. I'll try not to, you know, make you feel goofy just because you asked a question. The, the not learning comes with those kind of questions, even if we can't answer it here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, for, for his glory. Everything was created for his glory, and he decided that um, some would live and some wouldn't, and, and, and the ones who would not live to maturity, he receives readily to himself and to his kingdom. So um, that's the grace of God that does that. I think there's some things behind your question that, that you want to get at, and, and I, don't, I, I can't read them, but um, maybe we'll talk about some of them, and it has to do um, how does God treat um, the unsaved? How does God treat those who never hear his word? Um, those in, 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 in what we call primitive lands that don't, um, don't get an opportunity to hear the gospel. I said, that's, that's in, that may be in some of that question there, or it may uh, gender those kind of questions. Now, God's word does answer that, and I think Romans helps us understand that. Let's be clear, we're not talking about infants in this case. Well, we're talking about those who are um, in the age of accountability and can make some decision. Now, Romans makes it clear that God holds mankind accountable for their sin. And so um, they do not have to hear a clear gospel presentation to be held accountable for sin. Romans 1, 2, and 3 kind of march down that, that road. And we'll, we'll take some time to dig that out as we go through. I just didn't want to leave you hanging in where that stands. Um, so a person who grows up in China and never hears the gospel um, has a witness against them. Brian was kind of talking about some of that in Sunday school class this morning. Um, um, they have a witness against them in, in, in several accounts, and God does hold them accountable for uh, their rejection of him. And we can walk through especially the first three chapters in Romans, and kind of see that and kind of get a better understanding of how that flushes out. I do say that's a different and separate case than what we're talking about with infants and children who never reach an age where they can even make a logical decision. I saw another hand or a question. Yes, Mom. Oh, 
all through God's word, you can see this idea and this thought of God's compassion on those, on, on mankind, on, on those who are sinners in need of his grace. Um, and, and we see that. Now, what do we take out from that is that, uh, I will say this, it's not easier for God to redeem or save a child than it is for him to save an adult. It's the same miracle and the same line of grace. We do see, though, naturally, we see that a child is less um, 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 restrictive or less um, um, rejecting of truth. But the reality there is they're less rejecting, period. They're open to everything. And that's why Satan is after them so much. That's why our whole world system um, is, is, is targeted towards our children. All the nonsense that's going and being taught today is targeted towards children because they know they don't have the logical uh, framework to reject it. Homosexuality movement, all, all this nonsense is targeted towards children because they want to get them where they don't think through and cannot logically work through that and don't have that frame of mind. Um, so yeah, we have, a, we have a role there, and that is to educate our society so that they're not tainted by wickedness, uh, even from an early age, and, and give them the truth. So there's a battle for, for our children's minds. That's a true, a true, true battle. I opened up today's prayer time talking about the wickedness that I see in Chicago with the election of an official, a high official as a mayor. Yeah, th this is just, this is just a shame. It's it's an absolute shame. Yeah, well, we have a senator that's openly gay, so um, it's it's there. My point is that we're not ashamed about it as a society, and we brag about it and project it as it being something good. So what it said is, this is the first black woman openly gay mayor of Chicago. It's not the first black mayor in Chicago. It's not the first woman mayor in Chicago. So uh, we've already reached some of those pinnacles. But to say, oh, it's great because she's gay. She's homosexual. That, 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 that's a shame to our society. And they're trying to bend our society so much that we as Christians will accept and, and, and not speak out and say that it's wrong. So uh, yeah, and children, going back to the question, children need to be taught from day one what God expects. I, I love our catechism so much, and it, it's grounding adults and children as well in the truths of God's word. Um, we raise our children this way so that they can, when they get to a mind, they can develop their mind to think. And since God made the mind, to think in tune with God is, is exactly what God has in mind for the mind. And so we, we should be guiding them in truth and not in, in nonsense. All right. Jamar? No, it's not a covering. Let me, let me explain why. When we talk about vessels for destruction, the Bible never portrays someone as something out outside and a part of what they have a personal responsibility in, okay? Even when we looked at, at Romans 9 with Jacob and Esau, um, God 
God declared, and he knew this, but he also has given a personal responsibility to Esau. Esau um, degraded and disrespected his birthright. He did not respect it, okay? He showed what God knew would happen in his actions. So it's not just God said, well, you're going to be that, and you got nothing to do with it. Um, that, that's, that's kind of, a, I think, a misunderstanding of, 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 of what that is. Um, but yes, God is in control. God has, has uh, sovereignty in all areas. So we wrestle, you know, with, with putting that in, in balance as, as we should. The age of accountability is something that I think the Bible um, touches on because it talks about who, what's the basis for um, on what basis can a person make uh, a, a logical reasoning choice? And they are rejected by God because of their action and their choice. And, and that stands up in a court of, of God's law. So it's not just they're doomed to... to uh, uh, they're doomed to, to, to be condemned, and that's it. That condemnation follows them and, and is appropriate because of their action. Their heart is wicked. They live it out, and they show it. Um, so I don't think you can give a case for anybody who um, just said, well, I didn't even do nothing. God just said, I'm wicked, so I guess I am. We, we see that being acted out in their lives. We see it being acted out. Um, so what age accountability says is, is there a point in human development that a person, God holds a person accountable for what they have done? That, that's what we talk about when we talk about age of accountability. Is there a point in this person's development where they can make a decision and are responsible for the decision that they make? more questions so let's explore some of that as, as we go I know you have some follow-up to that and, and I want to I want to hear that so we'll we'll continue our discussion as we go on so let's close in a word of prayer um, father we thank you for um, opportunity to discuss your word help us to um, stay in the boundaries of your word as we work through our thoughts on these sometimes difficult topics. You would teach us and guide us and instruct us in how we should think concerning you and concerning your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.